America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage One, online accounting software designed to create freedom for small businesses to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, colleague, and co-host, Ed Klex. And folks, we are so excited, and we have been so looking forward to this particular show for a long time. Our very first guest, we are absolutely honored to have the Distinguished Professor of Economics, History, English, and Communication at the University of Illinois at Chicago, Professor Deirdre McClowski. Professor McClowski, welcome to our show. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad to talk. Always glad to talk. I'm a professor. <laughs> well, I, you know, your, your biography on your website is uh, very interesting. You say that she is known as an as a conservative economist, University of Chicago style, but protests that I'm a literary, quantitative, postmodern, free market, progressive Episcopalian, Midwestern woman from Boston who was once a man. That's me. You got me. (laughs) Well, we would love to focus on your last three books you were gracious enough to send us the the third in i is it going to be a book of four is that no there's confusion about that because i kept changing the number when i started it was going to be one book and then finally i got up to six i was going to call it a sexology and sell a lot of books <laughs> but uh i decided um three three is enough um i a, a uh a a tetralogy is an abomination. <laughs> well, we, we want to thank you. you. You were gracious enough to send us the, the, the third one in the series. And I have to say, we, we haven't read it all yet, but we've been making our way through it. And just like the prior two, it, it's just literally blowing our mind. <laughs> well, I, I, I hope I change your mind, not just blow it. <laughs> so, in in the first book in this series, Bourgeoisie Dignity, you set out to answer the following question: What caused the spectacular growth in the economy from the late 18th century to the present day, going from an income of approximately three dollars per day to one hundred and thirty-seven dollars today? Right. And how do you answer that? Well. The the main way that the book Bourgeois Dignity um, argues is against other materialist views. That's, that is, views that say, oh, well, it's investment or it's exploitation or it's foreign trade or something. And my reply to that is something that most economic historians agree on, which is that it was certainly innovation. It was certainly um, improvement. Of, of, of machines and processes and institutions. 
And then you have to ask what caused the improvements, the, the innovations of that character, the entrepreneurship behind it. And then you have to move away from material causes. Because after all, there's been you know foreign trade for tens of hundreds of years. There's been um, exploitation in the matter of slavery and other things since the beginning of agricultural society. So those can't be the causes. It's got to be something peculiar to the the 1700s and the 1900s. And I think what, what it was was a change in attitude towards innovation and towards markets. Right. And, and it took 50,000 years, really, essentially, to happen, right? Because you say this, really, all of the stuff that we have around us from the time that full language was invented, say, 50,000 years ago, the, the potential was always there, but yet it took 50,000 years for that change in rhetoric, that change in ideas to, to take root. That's, that's the great puzzle, because our enrichment only happened this one last time. There had been industrial revolutions before. As in, um, as in 5th century Athens or Song Dynasty China. That is, amazing periods of invention, innovation, but they all petered out. All of them did. And one reason they petered, petered out is that the elite didn't want to go any further. And the, what, what changed in this, this last time was the ideology, the ideas. And for the first time, entrepreneurs were being honored, whereas before they were tolerated at best. They were finally given dignity. They were, and that's why I call it bourgeois dignity, because my libertarian friends would like it to just be liberty. And that's okay. That's, that's obviously a very important part of it. But you have to have both. You have to have the legal ability to build a steam engine or whatever, or a railway. But then you also have to be honored by the society. Or else, in the long run, the, the liberty goes away. So it's, it's not just an economic legal change, it's a social change, a social and, and, and political change about this matter of dignity. Right. In fact, you draw a distinction between dignity by saying it's a sociological factor, opinions others have, like of the shopkeeper, whereas liberty is an economic factor and concerns the laws that constrain the shopkeeper. That's right. Um, as Don Boudreaux expressed it, Don is at George Mason and is a very um, clever student of these ideas, and he says... What, what happened was that the older societies had, had wrecking balls all over the place to tear down buildings. Um, there have always been people who wanted to build buildings, but this change that happened in northwestern Europe in, in the 1700s and the 1800s made uh, um, the, 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 there was someone stopping the wrecking balls. So there was legal economic liberty and the social dignity. What didn't change is the psychology. 
And I think people get confused about entrepreneurship that way. There have always been entrepreneurs. It's just they haven't been allowed to do their stuff. Right. You know, and it, it, you just made me think about something about the quote-unquote modern liber- liberty movement. And full confession, I'm a member of the Texas Libertarian Party, so. I'm a member of the Illinois Libertarian Party, so. Yay. How you doing, comrade? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Most excellent. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the things that I often fight against inside the party is the the language of uh, that is used around the sheeple. And in a sense, it's almost denying the dignity uh, of, of the people to think on their own. And I, I'm often offended by that, by my fellow libertarians who start to talk in that manner. And it bo- yeah. I've, I never thought why it bothered me, but now I understand why, because it's not giving people dignity. That's right. And there's a kind of Ayn Randian uh, line in libertarianism, which in a very romantic way elevates the entrepreneur as the hero. But from I, I, I think that's wrong. Sure, entrepreneurs are great. I'm all for them. But it's not that the other people are sheep, because they can be entrepreneurs, too, in small and large ways. And it, it's, there's a kind of arrogance to that 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 view that um, uh, that we need to elevate only the entrepreneurs. We need to elevate ordinary people because that's who we most of us are. And right. and I want to jump in and say – talk a little bit about this idea that you call the great enrichment, which is obviously the explosion of growth. And then why do you think that so many people are bent on denying, I think, the great enrichment, especially those that are actually the part of it, which is the bourgeoisie? Me, Ron, I guess you, right? It's very strange. That, but, you know, it, it was not known very clearly until the economic historians started to – work on it seriously in the 1950s and 60s. And gradually, it's become clear how big the increase in income was. I mean, early in the, in the 1800s, it wasn't obvious at all that this industrial revolution was going to result in what I call the great enrichment, which was the follow-on, what came after this final industrial revolution. And... <laughs> You, you have to get the magnitude or you don't get the point. As I think Ron said earlier, the, it's, it's the order of magnitude is $3 a day in you know, Chicago or, or Austin prices um, a day per person. Sort of three quarters of a bottle of milk or about the price of a bottle of milk over all your expenditures and all the things you can make. That's what our average ancestors in 1800 were earning. And now it's up to $130, $140 a day per person. And that's just completely transformative. That, that changes what life is. And what, but so it's not malice. It's just that people don't know this. So I, I spent a lot of time in the third book and indeed in all the others, but because I'm obsessed with this. But in the third book called Bourgeois Equality, I hammer on this point about how big it is. See, it's, it's just enormous and unique, therefore, utterly unique. It didn't happen in ancient Egypt. It didn't happen in ancient China, not Rome, blah, blah, blah. It's only in 
the modern world that it's happened and and it can spread to the whole world right you know, when we teach professor, we, we, we teach professionals and other business people about pricing and marketing, but also what we're at the end of the day trying to do is change results. And of course, to change results, you have to change behavior and to change behavior, you have to change beliefs. And now because of your work, we're convinced that to change beliefs, you have to change the language. Yeah. Werner Earhart's got a great quote. He says, all transformation is linguistic. If you want to change our culture, we need to change our conversation. And as, as we were saying before, the conversation has been very hostile to the, to the bourgeoisie or to the entrepreneur or the business person. And that's been internalized. We can borrow some... Um, ideas for, from the left and talk about I- internalized um, internalized oppression <laughs> because that's what it is. The ordinary business people in the United States, when they face the intelligentsia, the, the clerisy as I call it, are very liable to be very apologetic and say, oh, I'm just a business person. And they got to stop talking that way. And, and more important, I think the, the clarity itself has got to stop uh, <laughs> vaunting itself. I mean, I have lots of friends on the left, and I, and I, I was on the left myself once. And I can understand their their emotions, but they they have feelings like nonprofit occupations are more noble than profit occupations. Right, And I say to them, wait a minute, why is making something that people are willing to pay for less dignified, less worthy of praise than making something that, uh, like in a church or a, or, or, or a charity, that they aren't willing to pay for? Right. I, don't, or- I don't think it should be reversed or something, I, but, I, but I do think that we've got to get um, more uh, more sensible about the economy. Right. Terrific. And, and after the, our break, we're up against a break here, Professor. So I would like to ask you specifically about that in a phrase that has bothered me for a while, which is give back. But uh, for right now, for those of you who are interested in, in, in sending us email, it's TSOE at Verisage.com. Also, you can Twitter us at pound TSOE, and we do monitor the conversation on Twitter both during the show and afterwards. So pound TSOE on Twitter after the break from Sage Software. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit SageOne.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Are you interested in the topics discussed on The Soul of Enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit Verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose. 
measure what matters to customers, and is latest, implementing value pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E and follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. Do you work in, lead, or own a professional firm? Do you like what you hear from Ron and Ed on the soul of enterprise? Come see them live at the Affinia Manhattan Hotel in New York City on August 14th and 15th at the Sage Firm of the Future Symposium. Ron and Ed will help you and your organization make the transformation to a modern professional knowledge firm, one that is paid for value, not time. Visit Verisage.com forward slash firm for more details. That's Verisage.com forward slash firm. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're back from our break. This is Ed Klass along with my friend Ron Baker. And with us today is Professor Deirdre McClowski. Professor, we were left talking about rhetoric and the fact that many of the bourgeoisie who really enabled this great enrichment are in a sense self-loathing about it. And one of the ways that I see that manifest itself is in the phrase that we hear oftentimes more most often around the holidays, but just about any time where people talk about giving back to the community and how businesses and all of us must give back. And in fact, in my local paper this past week, there was a, a an article about 10-year-old Girl Scouts who were giving back to the community. And I thought, what what exactly did these girls take <laughs> that yeah. they have to give back? <laughs> so I, yeah. I don't mind. So my phrase is, I don't mind giving, but the idea of giving back is sort of offensive to me. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind commenting on that. Sure. It's, it's based on a, on a zero-sum idea about profits and income and so forth that the only way the Girl Scouts got any money is by stealing it. Now, uh, anyone who's been subject to a Girl Scout, Girl Scout uh, uh, um, cookie drive can sympathize a little bit with that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, they, they, it's it's voluntary, and and when a when a when when a business person uh, who's done well at at the end of her life says, well, I want to give back, I want to start a foundation or something, it's it's falling for this uh, anti-business idea. In fact, Andrew Carnegie was one of the great theorists of this. Um, he, he said that the man who dies rich dies thus disgraced. And I agree with him there. I'm, it's quite foolish to have <laughs> billions of dollars uh, inherited by your your lazy children. No, you you might as well give that away. But it's not as if they stole it in the first place. Because, and this is something that, as you know, escapes people all the time. They don't get that exchange is exchange, that it's voluntary. I was just arguing last night with, with my cousin, so that's my dog in the background. Wait a second. Be quiet. Hold it. Wait a second. <laughs> Sorry about this. Be quiet. Wait a second. I, I have to allow him out or he's going to keep barking. He wants to go after the other dog. Um, I was speaking to my, my cousins last night and who were, who were visiting and trying to explain to them that 
um, say, uh, uh, volunteer work or nonprofit organizations were not superior to commercial because in commercial ones, there's this instant test. Will the customers show up? And there's, there's nothing illegitimate about that. There's no stealing going on. I'm against stealing. But that's not what trade is. So, you know, yeah, I agree. Uh, give back. What a silly way of talking. I mean, and, and as an encouragement to charity, as you said, charity's good. Don't pile up a bunch of money that's not going to amount to anything. Start a, start a, I don't know, a, a, a public library or, or something. But yeah. it's not about giving back. Yeah, and and I, I you're right. It, that, what I I see is this zero sum th- thinking that's just absolutely pervasive, uh, even among business. I mean, we talk about, and one of the other things that get drives me nuts is when people talk about in a business deal playing poker with with the other side, a, 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 as if we have to reserve our cards, you know, for, for that's, to, that's that's a very good point, and you find this a lot in in the kind of. Uh, uh, lazy talk about competitiveness. We've got to compete. Well, yeah, we've got to compete, but most of the economy is about cooperation. Most of the economy is about getting people in remote lands to make deals with us voluntarily. And, and so competitiveness is uh, kind of oddly, it sounds very tough and economic, but it's not. It's, uh, it's very... Um, uh, old, it's it's medieval. It's you, you to know, turn the economy into a war, and that's not what the economy is. Professor, when you wrote that it's ideas or rhetoric that enriched us, the cause of the Industrial Revolution, in other words, was language, that most human of accomplishments. You're using rhetoric in the ancient sense of unforced persuasion. Is, is that right? right? Yes, and we have only two ways of making others do what we want. We can either sweet-talk them or we can t- take out our 38 and threaten them. That's the only choice we've got. You, you can't change behavior any other way. And trade, uh, this non-zero-sum, positive-sum cooperation, is, is as, as Adam Smith, as the blessed Adam Smith famous, famously said, is like conversation, like a conversation where you're trying to persuade someone of the truth of, I don't know, the Pythagorean theorem. So the, what, you, you, you can either motivate people with, with the, the, the stick or with sweet talk. And I say that sweet talk is becoming more and more important. And in this crucial great enrichment, it was just right at the center of it. And how big of a role do you think literature plays? I mean, you cite a couple things that really caught my attention in, in one of the books was you, you quote Niels Bohr, the great physicist, even physics is about what we humans can say. So even something as scientific as physics, the premier science, is still about this idea of language. And then right. Link, President Lincoln meeting Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, saying, so, this is the little lady who wrote the book that made the big war. That's right. And it's not that much of an exaggeration in, in Lincoln's case and not at all in Bohr's case. Yeah, sure. We're, 
Human uh, scientists are human. Politicians are human. People are human. Let's start with that rather straightforward idea. And the way humans get things done, the way they find ways to cooperate is by is by persuading each other, by persuading each other to fight a great civil war, first over the issue of uh, of the unity of the nation, and then over the issue of slavery. So, uh, and what happens in science, in in mathematics, or in even in mathematics, uh, is that one mathematician persuades another that her way of looking at the world is the right way. And so it's <laughs> my joke is that it's the, that it's rhetoric all the way down. That doesn't make it insubstantial or silly or baloney or something. It, it just means that, as I said before, all we have is the choice between violence and sweet talk. There's right. no other alternative. You know, I think you did a discussion on your latest book at, at Cato, and there was a panel, and I think Matt Ridley, who who we really admire and love his book, The Rational Optimist, but he, he was kind of challenging you. I know he's got a materialist explanation, coal or something, but one of the things that you said, and I just thought you won the debate when you said this, was that, well, Matt, you and I both write books, and isn't that's that right. all about well, we should. So- but that's what's so peculiar about the denial of ideas. My friends in economics or history kind of think of materialist explanations. Slavery is the cause of American riches, or, or foreign trade is the cause of English riches, or something like that. They think of that as more masculine and tougher and more grounded and more real. But then, as you just said, they spend their time writing books with ideas in them, trying to prove this. And it, it, there is a what the English professors call a uh, a, a, a performative con- contradiction in that. Right. I, I I first learned that from you from your two prior books, the rhetoric of economics, and if uh-huh. you're so smart. Yeah. <laughs> the narrative, and you, I, you've always been interested in this topic, obviously. I have, I have, I've always been a language person, and, and you know, I, <clears throat> we all want to be something else. We want to prove that in God's eyes, the world is such and such, and we don't want to bother with persuading other people. I would much rather if I could just announce that Deirdre McCluskey believes such and such, and everyone would say, well, gosh, that must be true. <laughs> but in a free in a free society, I don't really want that. I want people. I want ordinary people. I want my f- f- fellow humans to be open to ideas and to and to and to um, tangle with them, to struggle with the ideas, and become persuaded one way or the other. And that's it's dangerous because they can be persuaded by very bad ideas. Think, think of fascism or communism, which persuaded lots of people. Yeah, and, and just to pick up on, on something that we were talking about coming into the show, I, I, I now regret having read your work, allowing arguments to end in something like, well, that's just semantics or, as you say, rhetoric. Um, you know, the, the, the other one that I hear all the time that I've finally broken from is I, I no longer agree to disagree. What I agree is I said, one, I agree that one of us is wrong and just doesn't know it. 
don't deny that those things had influence. You just say it, it just doesn't even come close to explaining it. That's the problem. There, it, look, the, the job of a, of a physicist in Galileo's time was to measure the acceleration due to gravity at sea level. And, you know, if, if, if it's not 64 feet per second squared, it's 32 feet per second squared. And I think it is. I forget the number, but... <laughs> suppose it is and and um it's 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 no good to try to be nice to the aristotelians who say that if you throw a heavier ball off the tower of pisa by the way he didn't ever actually do that but if you throw a heavier ball off the um tower of pisa it'll arrive faster than than the light ball neither that's not true our job as scholars, scientists, journalists, teachers, whatever, is to find out the biggest causes. Excellent. And if you drop a ball through molasses, it'll fall to earth much slower than through air. But we want the, we want the figure to approximate what it is in a, in a, uh, in a vacuum. And we want to do science. That's called science. So this kind of political uh, compromise is no good. Excellent. So I well, offend everyone. I offend, offend people on the left. I offend people on the right. I offend people <laughs> in the middle. That's why I have no friends. It's really depressing. <laughs> well, you've got two big ones here. And, and Professor, well, when we come back from this break, we'll, we'll offend probably some even more some. Uh, <laughs> even more people so uh when we return from the short break from sage thank you as an entrepreneur you're on an adventure but there are parts of your business like revenue and expenses that don't feel very adventurous at sage one we get it we give you tools like easy invoicing simple accounting and reporting so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits sage one has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit SageOne.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Do you work in, lead, or own a professional firm? Do you like what you hear from Ron and Ed on the Soul of Enterprise? Come see them live at the Affinia Manhattan Hotel in New York City on August 14th and 15th at the Sage Firm of the Future Symposium. Ron and Ed will help you and your organization make the transformation to a modern professional knowledge firm, one that is paid for value, not time. Visit Verisage.com 
forward slash firm for more details. That's verisage.com forward slash firm. Are you interested in the topics discussed on the soul of enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E. And follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're honored to continue our discussion with Distinguished Professor of Economics, History, English, and Communication at the University of Illinois at Chicago, Professor Deirdre McClowski. And, Professor, I have a question. In your, in your books, you, I think you do a fantastic job of basically falsifying almost every other explanation that there could be for the Industrial Revolution and so it, it, it's almost like your hypothesis is the one that's left standing. Well, you know, that, that, that's right. But I, I, I didn't do it out of a kind of irritating desire to make other people look bad. That's not why I did it. <laughs> In fact, many of those hypotheses I once thought were true. I mean, I once, uh, as, as every American does, I once thought that slavery was very important for the prosperity of white Americans. Right. And as much as I hate slavery and glad that it's finished and it should have, we should have solved it in, at the Constitutional Convention, it's not the cause of American prosperity. And, and the same holds for all kinds of arguments that I once took very seriously, like the savings rate, kind of a conservative way of looking at it, uh, that there was a rise in the savings rate and that caused everyone to get rich. Well... There wasn't a rise in the savings rate, and even if there had been, it wouldn't have had the effect, the big effect that we see. And I emphasize again, especially in this follow-on to the Industrial Revolution, this great enrichment in the in the last, say, two thirds of the of the 1800s and in, into the into the 1900s. So. Uh, it's it's uh, in a way my whole career has been to be dragged kicking and screaming <laughs> to the conclusion that all these explanations are wrong and that only a cha- a deep change in the spirit of the age a deep change in people's attitudes not one by one improvements in entrepreneurial energy or something like like that but a whole shift in how the society talked about entrepreneurship, that's what caused the modern world. And why do you think that change happened? I mean, what what well, caused that change? That's volume three. I mean, people <laughs> that and say, ah, 
put your orders in early to the University of Chicago Press. I'm, I'm determined to finish Volume 3 and send it into the press, you know, for review and all that um, this very month. So I, I was just working on it this morning. And in Volume 3, I, I, I argue that by accidents of an egalitarian um, uh, facet of European politics in the age of the Reformation and the, uh, and the revolt, the Dutch revolt and the revolutions and, and reading, the four R's I call them, the coming of, of the printing press is the reading part. By an accident of how those played out in Europe as against China or South Asia or the Ottoman Empire, a part of the world which had been very backward before, and this is really important to understand, suddenly caught up with, say, China, and by 1800 was exceeding it. No one in 1500, if they had imagined that there might be an increase of a factor of 30 or even 100 in income per head in real terms uh, in the 19th and 20th century, would have imagined that it would happen in Europe. <laughs> Europe in 1500 looked a real mess. It was a poor, badly governed part of the world. China was much better in science, much better in engineering and in, in, in craftsmanship. They would have said, ah, science. I mean, uh, China is the place where things are going to happen. So it's a... Um, uh, it, 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 it was an, you know, it sounds very unsatisfactory, but I think it's the only way to go. It's an accident, so to speak. And the point is that it's not deeply, it's not some deep superiority of the Europeans. Hmm. That's why it's been so easy to imitate by non-Europeans. And, and is it two, two questions on this, and they're, they're really it's a fork, so I'll let you go which way, ever way you want. One is, uh, can, can this reverse itself through rhetoric is, would be yeah. one, one question. And the other thing yeah. is, does, in transformation, does changing the meaning of words happen faster or changing the word that is used? I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, the, so far as the reversal is concerned, you bet it can happen. And it's very dangerous. And it's one of the reasons I wrote the books, is to try to get us to stop bad-mouthing um, capitalism, although I don't much like the word capitalism because it, it focuses on the wrong things. But anyway, let's call it capitalism. No, well, I just I just want to jump in. I love the phrase that you do use because I've begun to use it myself, which is market-tested yeah. innovation and supply. I think it's brilliant. That's what it is. That's what it is. It's market-tested innovation and supply. And all of those words are essential, whereas capitalism draws your attention to savings rates and so on, which are basically not what the the important oomph, as I call it, in the uh, in the great enrichment, but it can be reversed because look, <laughs> the Soviet Union and worse Mao's China and Nehru and the later Gandhi's India did a pretty good job of reversing it. <laughs> right. They impoverished their uh, citizens. They, they didn't impoverish them completely because there was still spillover from the capitalist part of the world. But they tried, and, and, and that was ideas. That was straight ideas. People became persuaded that socialism and central planning was a grand idea. And the the Kims in North Korea. 
Look at North versus South Korea. Yeah. Look at East versus West um, Germany. Look at Cuba, indeed, versus the Dominican Republic. Now, the D- Dominican Republic is not a fabulously wealthy place, but, in, but since 1959, it's done much better than Cuba has. And as for the change of meaning, my, my favorite example of this is, um, there, there are tons of examples, but, well, actually, the very word innovation is a good example. Because in up until really the 20th century, innovation was a bad word. It was dangerous. You don't want to innovate. Good Lord, that would be terrible. Because that would change the balance of power in the society and hierarchy would be disturbed. But an even, even more interesting example happens earlier with the word honest, which in Shakespeare's time means honorable in an aristocratic way. I've got a very elaborate chapter on this in Volume 3. But then it comes to mean, in the, in the, in the, in the 1700s, it shifts. And instead of being the master word of an aristocratic society, a society of hierarchy and military or courtly honor of, of Shakespeare's world, it becomes a bourgeois world word. It becomes what we mean now by honesty, which is, you know, paying your debts and telling the truth and doing these kind of middle class things that that an aristocrat has no interest in. Hmm. Professor, I have a question about, you know, Marx was a master at changing the language. I mean, he really put in some words that have lasting effect. And one of the language uh, words I'm increasingly uncomfortable with is class. We start putting people in classes. Aren't we kind of accepting the premise of Marxism? Yeah, I think we are. And, and my friends on the left in English and, and um, history and so on do insist on using class analysis and gender analysis, but especially class analysis. And they feel it's kind of silly, I have to say. They're, not that I think they're silly people, but this particular thing is a little bit silly. They feel they're, they're contributing to the proletarian revolution if they attribute everything to social class. <laughs> and, and that's kind of silly because their professorial studies of um, early modern history are not going to change much. But yeah, I, I agree. The, the, yet, in all my books, I use the concept of class sort of in a jiu-jitsu move. I use it almost in its Marxist sense, although not actually, because there it's for, classes are then formed by the uh, means of production, and I don't believe that. But anyway, I call, I call it the bourgeoisie, which was um, a Marxist name for it, and I call it, the, I call it the proletariat or the peasantry and the aristocracy, and I have these people having little dramas with each other. But the point of my books is that the universal class into which we're developing is not, as Marx said, the proletariat, but it's the bourgeoisie. We're all becoming middle class, and Americans are way in advance of this. Most Americans think that they're middle class in a way that a French person would not ever think of claiming. So anyway, I'm, yeah, I, I don't... I don't like class analysis. I don't think it gets you very far. In fact, there's, there's a deep economic argument against it because 
if you think that classes work for their self-interest, it's, it's a category era, error because groups have no individual incentives to work for their self-interest, if you see what I mean. This is a point yes. that the, the great economist Mansur Olson made a long time ago. Right, right. Uh, excellent. Well, I'm glad to get confirmation on that. So, folks, uh, we're going we're gonna to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to ask the professor about uh, a book that's on everybody's mind right now, at least on the left side of the spectrum, Thomas Piketty's uh, new book, and we'll talk about that when we t- return from the short break. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit SageOne.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Are you interested in the topics discussed on the soul of enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit Verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose. Measure what matters to customers. And his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E. And follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. Do you work in, lead, or own a professional firm? Do you like what you hear from Ron and Ed on the Soul of Enterprise? Come see them live at the Affinia Manhattan Hotel in New York City on August 14th and 15th at the Sage Firm of the Future Symposium. Ron and Ed will help you and your organization make the transformation to a modern professional knowledge firm, one that is paid for value, not time. Visit Verisage.com forward slash firm for more details. That's Verisage.com forward slash firm. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Deirdre McClowski, the author of Bourgeois Dignity, and talking about her book. And I would love to ask you, Professor, about a book that I think is destined to become a classic, meaning that everyone cites it, but no one reads it, <laughs> which, is, which is Thomas Piketty's new book, 20 Capital in the 21st Century, whatever it is. And it just seems to me, his whole premise reminds me of you know, the German proverb, if you want equality, visit a cemetery. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He's, he's, this, this obsession with equality is off the point. We should be concerned about the, the condition of the working class, to coin a phrase. 
we should be concerned about the condition of the poor of the country. Are they getting better? I don't really care how many Rolex, stupid Rolex watches the heir to the L'Oreal fortune has, whereas he just is obsessed with this. <laughs> He's right. very annoyed by, by rich people. And uh, to, to go back to what we started with, he thinks they should give back. And as you said, as an um, incentive to charity, I agree. I think it's really stupid that they buy yachts and, and, and so on, and, and they ought to be ashamed of themselves. But that didn't cause poor people to be poor. It's not equality. It's raising up the poor that matters. And how do you do that? By the economy improving, by the size of the economy getting bigger, by the pie getting bigger. That's how it's been historically. That's how it's happening in China and India. That's how it's going to happen in the world. So it's just, it's, it's to miss the point to go on and on about equality. And, and I, I haven't read it yet because, honestly, I saw the book and, and thought, oh, oh, great, yet another book that shows us that, you know, 20 percent of the people are in the lowest quintile. I mean, yeah. no kidding. Yeah, I'm, I'm shocked by this. I, I, I think it's just uh, falling. And, you know, 1 percent of the um, uh, of the richest are in the 1 percent. It's quite shocking. It's, it's like the it's like the problem that people have about the poverty line. If you define the poverty line as a relative poverty line, then, of course, the poor are always going to be with us. What we need to do is what a lot of people on the left and right have done, which is to ask, what do we think poor people need to participate in a democratic society and have a, a dignified life? Let's make sure that's improving. And that makes much more sense to me. And in that case, things can get better, whereas they can't if you have an ever-changing poverty line, which defines everyone under 20% as poor. Right. His, his thesis about capital accumulation, I mean, I think you yeah, drive... Yeah, that wrong, too. Yeah, you drive a dagger in the heart of that when you say piling up is not the yeah. heart of economic growth. Innovation is. But it just seems like he takes it for granted that, that wealth is just well, automatically there. As it he would, says, that's, you're, you're exactly right. He's, it, like, he's, he's got, he, like most people on the left and some on the right, he's ignored the great enrichment. He's nowhere in that book are you told that the working class has, in real terms, been made better off by a factor of anywhere from 30 to 100 in the last couple of centuries. Never does he mention it. Um, and I have lots of friends, especially on the left, who do this. I mean, very serious and good scholars, as, as this guy is. He's no dope. I'm not saying he's, he's an idiot. But he, he, he's, he's back with... Ricardo and Marx, and he, he actually says this early in the book, his way of looking at the world is really zero-sum. Now, Marx wasn't zero-sum. Marx, for his time, was very understood very well that the, the famous phrase in the Communist Manifesto about the bourgeois era and how productive it's been. Mm -hmm. But Ricardo, earlier classical economist, Englishman, was very, very pessimistic. 
And in any case, they didn't get neither of them, and really no one until very late in the 19th century among economists. The engineers understood it much earlier, but the economists didn't get it. No one realized how, how big the great enrichment would be. And as I said before, that this magnitude is so important. So I'm going to do a review of uh, his book, um, and I'm going to try to be fair, but it's going to be hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I don't see, and I, I think you do point this out in your third book, because I was reading it a little bit the, this morning to get prepared, you know, how anyone who can watch one of Hans uh, Rosling's uh, presentations on TED Talks not understand this. Absolutely. I, I highly recommend to all, 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 all your listeners that they look up Rosling, R-O-S-L-I-N-G, Hans Rosling, who's a professor of public health in Sweden. He's got these sensational short TED Talks, is what they amount to. Um, that you're, you're right. It's perfectly clear from those talks. Birth rates have been going down. So population is not a problem. Um, even in Bangladesh, birth rates are almost at replacement levels. And Bangladesh is still very, very poor. And yet, all these countries, Hans says, are moving towards the United States. And that's yep. great for everyone. Amazing. And, and I, I'll have one more question. I'm sure Ron does. And, and first of all, we're getting near the, near the top. Thank you so much for, for uh, talking with us today. It's been fascinating. Uh, th- th- perhaps you can help settle an argument between myself and Ron. Okay. <laughs> what, what is more important, do you think, ideas or their execution? Well, uh, sheer ideas, if they're just in a vacuum and never are executed, I guess don't account for much. That's, that's the problem with modern mathematics, that it's become like chess problems, uh, only of interest to mathematicians, whereas there, for a couple of centuries, Western mathematicians concerned themselves with physical problems solved mathematically. So I'd, I'd have to say that, but, but you know, you, you have to have both. You have to have an implementation, and the implementation has to be rhetorical. It right. has to be about persuasion. It's well it's, done. It's, it's pretty hard to implement a crappy idea. It's hard to implement a crappy idea. It's not impossible to persuade people to do it, even if it's crappy, as we see from socialism and fascism and lots of others, nationalism. But the good ideas won't get going unless you and I and 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 Hollywood and uh, country music composers and so on um, do a good job. Well, Professor, in the last half minute or so, uh, my my last question is: Why are so many economists Keynesians? I mean, even Karl Marx wanted to nationalize the means of production, not consumption. Yeah. Well, they. they I was a Keynesian once because I was trained at Harvard, and all of us were Keynesians then, because it's magical. That's why they like it so much. You can, according to Keynes, you can make yourself rich by spending. And when you think about it, that's, that's just nuts. <laughs> and, but right. on the other hand, it works in extreme cases of mass unemployment. So in 1933, with a quarter of the labor force unemployed, Keynesian measures might have worked, but they didn't work 
the last time they were tried in the United States. And uh, it's, it's, it's magical thinking. Right. Well, Professor, again, thank you so much for appearing on the show today. You know, author and educator William Arthur Ward once wrote that the great teacher tells, the good teacher explains, the superior teacher demonstrates, but the great teacher inspires. And you have certainly inspired Ed and me today, and we will be eternally grateful to you. Thank you well, so thank much. thank you so much. You're very kind to um, say that. And and uh, we'll, we'll have a full write-up on the show, folks, with links to professors' books. And uh, we encourage you to, to read as much of these books as you can. They are just a treasure trove of ideas. And, uh, Ed, thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you back here next week. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage One online accounting software designed to create freedom for small businesses to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, and Ed and I will be talking about everyday ethics, doing well and doing good. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at verisage.com slash TSOE for more information on each show, including additional resources, reading, and the books we mentioned, and, and even more information. So thank you very much. See you in 167 hours. <laughs>